Hi, this is Making Connections, a podcast by the Flame University Writing Center. My name is Aditya Sudarshan. Our goal in this podcast is to connect instances of academic research with the fundamental ideas that surround them and to do this via conversation. Today we're talking about conflict. That's a subject which unfortunately is always timely, but especially so at this moment, given everything that's been happening at India's northwestern border. However, I am interested in conflict not for its own sake, but rather for the sake of what it can reveal about peacemaking and about the logic and the strategies of peacemaking. I suppose it can be hard to believe at such times, but the work of peacemaking is capable of succeeding. And we actually have an instance of a full-blown and violent territorial conflict that ended in a seemingly lasting peace here in India in our northeast. Uh, I am referring to the case of Mizoram. So let's get deeper into this. Joining me now is Smitana Saikya, Professor of International Studies at Flame University. Professor, welcome to Making Connections. Thank you. Yeah. So you did your dissertation comparing the Mizo conflict in Assam with the Bodo conflict uh, in the same state. And your research puzzle, as you put it, was why did these two conflicts uh, have such different outcomes? They were both territorial conflicts in more or less the same part of the country, but one resulted in an enduring peace accord and the other continues to fester. So tell us how you went about solving this puzzle and what you identified as being the key to it. Um, so I'll start with how I sort of came upon this puzzle in the mm. first place. Um, so a lot of the literature on the Northeast, um, you know, portrays the region as sort of this homogeneous unit. Um, remote, backward, these are the kind of terms yeah. that are used for it, right? And uh, perpetually in conflict with the Indian state. Um, but at a closer look, you you see that the conflicts that have existed since independence um, have actually had some variations mm. um, in their nature, in their intensity, and so on. Um, and one such conflict which sort of uh, really sort of intrigued me in that sense was the Mizo conflict because mm. it went on for around 20 years. Mm. It started uh, after independence and went on for 20 years. It was a violent insurgent conflict um, and violence was visited upon also by the Indian state um, um, and it was a territorial conflict. Um, but Mizo conflict then uh, in the year 1987 was resolved with the formation of the state of Mizoram. It was carved out of Assam. And after that, the peace has actually endured. In fact, it's one of the most peaceful states in Mizora, uh, in, in the Northeast um, mm. in general. Uh, but within the state of Assam, then, are these other conflicts, and one of them uh, being the Boro conflict, which also emerged in the 60s, initially as a linguistic cultural conflict, mm. and then towards late 80s, when the more sort of um, you know, extreme elements of the, um, of the movement took over, uh, they started claiming territorial um, demands, uh, separatist territorial demands. And that sort of um, conflict has gone on since then. Um, there have been concessions that have been made to the Boros as well, but within the, uh, within the state of Assam. Mm. Um, but clearly that has not resolved the conflict. Um, some, of the, some of the groups within uh, the Boro uh, movement still continue to claim um, sovereignty um, and they are waging um, sort of a low-intensive um, militant um, mm. movement against the Indian state. 
so this is how i sort of so i saw that um despite sort of similar federal apparatus that was made available right um to the northeast after independence this was through the sixth schedule of course uh, you see that um certain groups have gone on to accept uh, those concessions others have not um and i you know did a sort of a long term historical study of how these conflicts have emerged um to 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 understand that um territorial conflict per se uh, does not have any inherent sort of uh, quality of becoming intractable mm. it is possible to find solutions for territorial conflicts but it's how the link between that particular ethnic group and territories established mm. in the literature in of course ethnic conflict a common understanding is that um ethnic conflict when it becomes acquires a territorial dimension that is when a conflict usually becomes um both protracted and intractable um but like i found in this in this comparative um case analysis um that actually it's not just territorializing because both both conflicts were territorial in nature one of course became territorial a bit later in its movement trajectory however both were making territorial demands but it's really how you establish that territorial links and these links are established over a period of time of state formation um um that ultimately determines if that conflict will uh, find enduring peace or not yeah so like i think you you you've spoken about the the distinction that was made between the hill tribes and the plains yes. tribes so the mizos um because they have historically resided in the hills of the northeast um so the northeast again the um the topography of the northeast is such that it's uh, interspersed with hills and valleys right so the valleys have always had a caste hindu presence mm. and therefore the smaller tribal communities that have um lived um you know that were indigenous to the plain areas had much more sort of much deeper connection with the caste societies mm. right which is why a sort of a civilizational link was sort of established right mm. um and the dominant groups the assamese saw a civilizational link but with reference to nagas and mizos and other sort of hill tribes this kind of link wasn't seen mm. because hill tribes have predominantly remained relatively isolated mm. especially the mizos if not the nagas um and that's the reason i think even the kind of constitutional arrangements that were after independence given to the hill tribes mm. were a bit different from the plain tribes hill tribes were granted territorial autonomy within the indian constitution so the sixth schedule actually provided for autonomous district councils for hill tribes mm. uh, but but for plain tribes because they were seen to be part of the same hindu society yeah. but on the margins mm. albeit on the margins um they were imagined to eventually be incorporated in that hindu society so they weren't seen to be deserving candidates for a territorial autonomy from the beginning mm. right so you see the even the um, constitutional apparatus was different for the hill tribes and the plain tribes yes. right and um which is why when the the mizo conflict began even the solutions that were being thought were territorial in nature mm. right so the mizo the autonomous district council was converted into a union territory in the 70s and then later they were seen as deserving candidates for a state mm. of them for themselves but a similar demand that was made by boros has not been recognized mm. yet 
so if i um, so if i can sort of sort of draw a, a kind of principle from this or or a thought from this uh it would be that the way in which um the mesos made their claim uh, to their territory was more persuasive uh, or, or more palatable let's say to to the indian state uh because it kind of um it it kind of posited uh, uh an organic connection with territory uh, where isol- being isolated helps uh, and I, i suppose i mean i'm just thinking uh, a kind of extreme instance of of this would be uh, like say you have uh, the sentinelese tribe who's you know they they are away on on an island of course they they are hostile to the state but it's acceptable mm-hmm. because one accepts that mm-hmm. they have this um, they have this way of life which is linked with this with this particular land yeah. would that kind of be yeah uh, and it's important to understand why that is mm-hmm. why these ideas came about why is it that we see mesos or the centelies sort of ha- to have some organic connection with the land that i argue is a result of that long term historical state formation processes mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and especially um, you know the way colonial apparatuses sort of the colonial apparatus emerged in mm. these isolated areas because they were left out yeah. from the daily governance of the colonial regime these were the hill areas of the northeast were sort of excluded from the um, colonial um, governance mm. right they were made into ex- uh, excluded uh, enclaves mm. um, where regular laws um of the colonial regime will not be applied right and these were then inherited by the post colonial indian state and they continued with this idea and the discourse that hill tribals are a different you know civilization or a group of people this is also very sort of coming from a very sort of um evolutionary idea of societies mm. that certain groups are still in certain stages of evolution so it's best to leave them alone make a concession yes them, yeah. so it's it's coming from a colonial idea of course yeah. you know the idea of yeah. uh, separation of the hill tribes from others yeah but um i suppose then the i mean if we look at the really the really intractable territorial conflicts around the world uh, or what seem to be really intractable like uh, as, as in the middle east um or in kashmir uh i guess there you're seeing claims to territory but those claims are um the i mean the actual bone of contention is something is something in culture something in religion which um which then uh, focuses on territory as the kind of theater of the conflict and it was something similar with the bodos right it it didn't start as a as a territorial conflict it started as a uh, as a linguistic is that right a linguistic yeah, conflict linguistic culture Uh, and then territory became it's sort of we are different therefore we need uh, a separate space yes yes because the idea this is again rooted in the idea of the nation and the nation state mm. right with with a modern nation state and rights rights of individual uh, rights of groups to make claims over a nationhood mm. right when that idea is so engrossed in today's international order and especially with the un announcing that um, you know in the 50s that groups have a, a a claim to self determination mm. the moment you say that groups have some kind of organic claims to self determination um so then groups by way of difference will make territorial claims mm. so to to institutionalize and to recognize this difference they need a territory mm. right yeah. so so perhaps kashmir is one case and boro you're right also is another case mm. boro boros use the same language of 
of self determination as a result of difference mm. but the interesting thing is that when we talk about these conflicts uh, we tend to kind of lapse into the language of territory itself mm. even though the real reason why it's intractable or difficult is because um, it's a conflict between people and something in their culture so for instance this um, this kind of slogan that we have that kashmir is an integral part of india uh, i mean when you say that it's like okay you can you take it or leave it but if i were to say instead that the kashmiri people are an integral part of the indian people that's actually what we're talking about right mm-hmm. in this conflict because it's it's not uh, about the land itself it's about these people and do they do they belong with us civilizationally or yeah. or not yeah. yeah absolutely so i mean if you look at any any territorial conflict hmm. for that matter i mean kashmir being one of sort of the prime examples um there has to be at least minimum two parties hmm. right um when the parties making claims over a territory becomes you know indivisible when it becomes zero game mm. when both are making exclusive claims over that territory using whatever language it may be a cultural religious you know any other ethnic marker um then i believe it becomes difficult to find solutions to it uh, the moment you go away from territory and you start talking about people i think there is more latitude to discuss peace yeah uh, but there is also i think a bit of danger there because making claims over people often has as history has um, is witness uh, can lead to very aggressive assimilation and integration processes mm. right and that can also eliminate indigenous cultures so we have to be so while you're right that you know if territory if we shift focus from only territory and uh, move our interest in the people um there is more scope to talk about peace right because people are more negotiable than the idea of territory mm. right because territory is geographically a fixed entity but people's identities are socially constructed and hence more malleable yeah um you can you can have complementary identities yeah. as is the case in indian federalism so if i'm assamese i'm also indian yeah. right i also have a regional northeastern identity whatever that may mm. mean but it's possible to have multiple multiplicity of identities in one person and if we understand that then it's possible to be both a kashmiri have a kashmiriyat mm. but also be indian yeah. in that sense yeah uh, i just think that at least then we are talking about um, what we need to be talking about and uh, it can it also imposes an obligation on the citizen so for instance it's very easy for people to be jingoistic and say that this is an integral part of india but if i am if i am now saying that these people uh, are are my people then that imposes obligations on me in terms of how i behave with them yeah. so you know these instances that we see of of yeah. know, kashmiri people getting beaten up it actually goes to the heart mm-hmm. of the matter it's not incidental it can seem almost incidental right. when we're talking only about territory mm-hmm. so i guess yeah it um uh i mean it brings us a, a, a fresh set of dangers but at least you're actually talking about yeah and that can help you prevent the othering hmm. um because if you're if you're if you're only concentrating on the territory by virtue of the territorial demand you're you're able to other people hmm. but here if you're focusing on the people i think it's possible to contest that othering which ultimately leads to dehumanization and therefore violence and you know hmm. those kind of targeted atta- yeah. attacks yeah. so yeah okay the, the other thing i wanted to ask you about um 
which I think is is uh, at least tangentially connected, or maybe more than tangentially connected. Um, it's this idea in international studies, the, the democratic peace theory. Uh, can you can you tell us about the democratic peace theory? What it is, and like, uh, do you think it stands? How does it work? So, in in its bare essential, I think the democratic peace theory is really a, a sort of a proposition that democracies mm. uh, deal with their neighbors better, are better in their foreign relations with neighbors who are equally identified as democracies, right? So, because in a democracy you are sort of accountable. Uh, to the public, to your citizenry. Mm. Um, therefore, war becomes a sort of a costly proposition then, right? Because you can be held accountable in the next elections. Yeah. Um, and so, and there is sort of both empirical evidence that shows, yes, to an extent, democracies are helpful. Demo- when sort of two two warring demo, when two actors, uh, state actors who are who identify each other as democracies. Mm. Have are better suited to de-escalate an emerging conflict. Um, although this theory has not established direct causal links okay. in the sense that is democracy the only thing that has actually or the only key factor that has led to de-escalation or a shorter war mm. or enduring peace. But definitely, um, democracy is is one of the one of the factors. One of the factors. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's also I guess. Uh, in a democracy, you also have um, you also have a situation where, for instance, war can be a a strong proposition during election time. Uh, but that's provided you have um, cast your opponent as undemocratic. Uh, I suppose there th- there there is at least an imperative to uh, to demonize the other or to uh, or you know to present the other in a in a light which is which is non democratic. If you are a democracy who plans to uh, sustain a conflict yeah at least in today's times yes i mm. think you have to um the only way to perhaps show the other other actor as other state actor as um as deserving any kind of um you know sort of action from your side mm. is sh- portraying them as as an inherent aggressor mm. right if you're able to do that um and i think it um an aggressor and a democracy may not go hand in hand. Sometimes, I mean, even a democracy can be portrayed as an aggressor, okay. right? Mm. But as we see in the India-Pakistan conflict, India India benefits from the fact, mm. um, you know, that Pakistan has a deep state mm. and you know of of, mili- of the military, and the fact that Pakistan has had direct army rule over you know over periods of time since indip- since its independence mm. so it historically india has a stronger case yeah. um to you know to claim that uh, pakistan is an aggressor and therefore uh, you know we Conflict have the rights is, to yeah, sort of yeah is kind of the way to go yeah, yeah. um but so from a from a peacemaking standpoint i suppose it's important to always be trying to convert um, the other side into a people, into into a community, to kind of, uh, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to like finding reasons to uh, cast them as non-democratic, uh, instead to humanize them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if one I, if one were able to do this, mm-hmm. then as per 
the democratic peace theory mm. uh, you'd be on on the road towards the escalation yes exactly so which is why i said we need to qualify what kind of democracy we are talking about mm. if the democracy is a majoritarian one mm. then it becomes difficult right because you know one of the basis of a majoritarian democracy is sort of an aggressive nationalism mm. um but if you if you create if you are a substantive democracy with a flourishing civil society mm. um that that uh, so and you and as a state you appreciate channels other than the official communication channels mm. channels and you recognize that there are civilizational links that neighbors especially in the subcontinent have shared mm. i think um, it's absolutely possible to work towards peace mm. um but then you know so uh, which is why the democratic peace theory does make sense in the sense it links domestic politics with international um affairs with mm. foreign relations right um and we need to understand that foreign relations are forged um in the in the way the the current domestic climate really works mm. which is why also there will never be a fixed answer to this you know the the way democracies evolve yeah. from a populist to a majoritarian to a more substantive democracy then the democratic peace theory would also evolve yeah and it's interesting you mention um, a flourishing civil society i think this is where uh, i mean i see uh, that if we kind of shift the onus of handling these conflicts from state actors and would be state actors only uh, to civil society groups mm. um, uh, or or at least kind of sh- share the onus this would be a way to sort of uh develop community on both sides develop a sense of community right because um uh i mean coming back to the case of the of the mesos Absolutely. i think this is another another thing you pointed out that there was a difference in the community identity itself yes and in the one case there was more of a you know a sense of of a civil society mm. uh, which again led to a good result absolutely i mean this was another key finding of my research which was that um so one is of course how you establish you know historically established links between a people and a territory mm. but the other is how that the group identity itself is formed mm. or constructed over time right so if you create a more exclusive identity where the other is defined very clearly then you make exclusive demands as well mm. but you're able to um, you know construct a more inclusive ident- identity a more civil identity mizo is actually interesting because it's not really an ethnic identity in that sense yeah. right mizo identity is also um uh, a number of groups coming together um creating mizo really means people of the hills okay. right um and that allowed them to sort of uh, uh the kind of demands they made allowed them to have some kind of internal coherence hmm. in the boro case there's also a lot of factionalism within mm. um because the boros emerged as a plain tribes a kachari kachari identity was the common identity from there they went on to carve a much more exclusive boro identity mm. thereby relegating other ethnic groups outside that mm. um but mizos did, did the opposite that actually brought together the mizo elite brought together many groups mm. um and that helped them but the other thing that also helped the mizos is the presence of the church and mm. this is again my reiterating the point on civil society the church um, organization the institution of the church is very strong mm. again because of historical reasons of colonialism 
and that helped um, and the church actually played a very crucial role in establishing peace in fact the church was able to convince both the mnf the militant group mm. as well as the government to come to the table for talks and to sustain those talks mm. so this kind of you know third party arbitration in the form of a group that has legitimacy in that society mm. really helped mizo peace to come together and in that sense i suppose the indian state got lucky right because uh, the fact that the, the mizos had the church and the church could play this role um, it it just so happened it was it i guess there wasn't really a concerted attempt or was there uh, to foster that kind of uh, atmosphere of dialogue within the community Uh, concerted effort on on on, on, the, on the part of on the part of the Indian state. No, this was quite organic actually yeah. because the church itself had its interests. Hmm. You know, the church because it's so powerful, its interest was to maintain stability. Hmm. Stability is key to maintain the hold that the church has on on Mizo society, hmm. and that actually sort of um, incentivized yeah. um, and encouraged them to you know sustain peace efforts. Yeah. because otherwise the the way we think in terms of uh, you know aggressively approaching conflict is let's divide yeah. the the other side yeah. right let's yeah. uh, let, let's find let's find warring factions yes. and put them against each other yes. and if you faction create factions you're able to bring at least somebody to table and and that's also what indian state does and they have been doing it with the boros and nagas for example yeah. they try to weaken certain factions so that you can bring others to table yeah so that's also there but uh, then those conflicts fester they have festered it hmm. it's become difficult um to uh, once you factionalize it's difficult difficult to bring them together hmm. yeah. so th- i mean that's interesting because the, the the actually the successful instance that you have is uh, points in the other direction yes. it, it points towards the opposite of divide and rule yes. which is to kind of you know look to have um, a unified identity yeah on the part of your opponent yes uh, and i think it's also interesting that you mentioned that um the so internal conflicts did arise yes. within, within the mesos but they seem to be of a, a healthy variety where you you kind of question hmm. uh, you are able to change your claims you're hmm. you're able to hmm. you're able to shift stance hmm. um so so it's different from just yeah. having factions yeah. right? i mean the meso meso case is very interesting because i mean in uh, you know because of again structural historical reasons complementary identities have been possible mm. of course there are fractures in that also and my further research is now going to be on okay. that that how this kind of you know fracture in in this sort of common meso identity affects um the peace does it you know is is there a step back or you know or is the peace really established now mm-hmm. um i think it's the latter but we need to also not uh be very romantic about because since identities are constructed mm. it's also possible to unravel them mm. so i think we shouldn't be romantic about it but we should acknowledge the importance of the the nature in which you can construct that identity and i think you you know sort of more assimilative non aggressive assimilated identities work better for um for peacemaking yeah great um so and i just um it's in a way it's ironic because the meso conflict is the one where we we actually conducted air strikes yes, so the, the indian state it was the only sort of uh, case in indian history where the indian state used air strikes against its own citizens so i think we've just marked its anniversary couple of days back mm. so that is clearly etched in the minds of people still mm. so the the 
the, the when I was doing my interviews in mm-hmm. 2013, um, you know, it has become a legend really. And there is still sort of, you know, this deep sense of, um, you know, resentment mm-hmm. in that sense for that particular act. Um, Mizo still don't necessarily see themselves as Indian, mm. right? But they are, um, they have worked out a concession mm. in which, you know, it's a give and take. So, you know, we have our own state, right? We don't necessarily have a civilizational link still mm. with India. But because of, of course, a lot of reasons, we are okay to sort of continue this mm. um, arrangement. Um, and now, you know, uh, an average Mizo does not talk about being Indian or non-Indian. That's not really the issue for them. Mm. Um, as it was, say, in the 60s when the I mean, MNF movement had begun. Mm. But now that debate sort of is rested, I think. So, yeah, so it's, it's heartening that um, the piece is actually, I guess, able to handle a lot uh, and a lot of terrible history. Mm. Um, if If one is if one is also moving in the right direction in terms of all these factors that we discussed where uh, of course you you know you have a particular kind of territorial claim but more importantly you have um, you have a civil society yeah. and you have uh, you have an, you have a, um, actors who are looking to to engage with each other yes. uh, and as opposed to yeah. um, demonizing yeah absolutely if i can just quickly add one more thing What's why it worked in Mizoram is the willingness, is the sheer imagination that the Indian state had mm. in providing concessions. When you actually, and you only give out concessions when you have some trust in your own citizens, mm. right? Because the literature on federalism also is divided on two lines, whether concessions, territorial concessions actually accommodate conflict or does it actually exacerbate conflict more? Do people then want to use that territorial claim and uh, then make demands for secession? Mm. But in the Mizo case, it hasn't been the case, right? Mm. So, and that's what's interesting. So, I think if all other factors work, if there's an inclusive identity, if you're able to garner civil society support, making concessions, uh, making concessions by the state actually works. Mm. Uh, not yeah. alone, but like I said, with yeah. those other qualities. I mean, we, we, it's, a, it's the kind of thing we talk about in all conflict, right? Like, if, if you have a connection with this person or this group of people, yeah. give them freedom. Yes. And uh, don't be afraid yes. of uh, In of the case the of Kashmir, I mean, the Indian state has historically marginalized their autonomy. Mm. You know, the kind of interference we have seen since independence with the local sort of autonomy of Kashmir, Mm. that has hindered the faith of Kashmiris in the Indian state Mm. in general. It's not just to do with a particular party, Mm. but it's the state in general that they have, um, you know, uh, they're not in good faith. Great. So, uh, good to talk about this. uh, And um, I think it, uh, it, I think for me, it gives food for thought in terms of looking at conflicts um, not not for the sake of you know how you perpetuate a conflict or, or how you aggressively win a conflict, yeah. but the much more interesting question of how how you make peace and, and how you win peace. Um, thanks to our listeners. I hope you found this interesting. Um, if you did, then please uh, please subscribe to this channel. We look forward to uh, a series of podcasts on, as I said, academic research and connecting that research with ideas that we can draw from them that surround them. Thank you. Thank you.